Download a podcast from Relay FM recorded Thursday, May the 4th, 2017. This is episode two Television is Technology. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell. This is our second week. I'm glad you're here listening to this podcast. This week, I am joined by two wonderful guests. First off, in a shocker, not originally planned, but the topics this week, we had to have her back right away. Once again, she, I swear she's not going to be on every week, but right now she's two for two. It's Lisa Schmeiser, Editor-in-Chief of the Super Site for Windows. Welcome back, Lisa. You now are officially our first repeating guest. Thank you. I'll, I'll do my best to set a good precedent for other repeating guests. I appreciate that. That's very responsible of you. Also joining <laughs> us this week is Carolina Milanese, who is an analyst at Creative Strategies, who I've been following on Twitter a lot, but I don't think I've ever talked to on a podcast before. Welcome to Download. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you both here. Lots of stuff happened this week, so we should probably get to it. Uh, this concept of this podcast again it's the three best stories of the week best chosen by me and the download podcast brain trust which is just a fancy name for my producer Stephen hackett who i do trust and also definitely has a brain so it's fair (laughs) thanks for the vote of confidence jason (laughs) yeah absolutely that is a compliment you should take it as such so topic number one uh is microsoft Actually, Microsoft, lots of interesting stuff from Microsoft this week. The new Surface laptop, which is a 13-inch traditional laptop form, starting at $999. That looks an awful reminiscent of the MacBook Air, except, you know, has a high-resolution touchscreen display and the latest generation i5 and i7 processors. And also, Microsoft announced Windows 10 S, which is a streamlined version of Windows that boots quickly, only runs apps that are in the Windows App Store, and is targeted at the low-cost education market. I thought we would start first by talking about the Surface Laptop. It's shiny hardware. Everybody wants to talk about it. It uh, It is the first traditional PC style, not a not a tablet or a tablet with an attachable kind of keyboard or a, or that uh, the, the one with the little hinge thing. It's the first, like, it's just a laptop to be made by Microsoft and the Surface brand. I'm wondering what both of you think about Microsoft's motivation in building this product. And it, does it is it relevant for their, their PC making partners? How does it fit in with the PC ecosystem? Carolina, what do you think? There's no question that there is demand for that form factor. So if we uh, start with where the device was announced, which was at an education event, um, there are a lot of uh, college students that still prefer a traditional laptop form factor to a two-in-one. And that's where Microsoft was uh, targeting the um the Surface Laptop. There are also a lot of enterprises that still prefer uh, a traditional form factor. And so, you know, although um, we are moving away from education, that was the, the primary focus. There's an appeal there for somebody who wants uh, a higher end laptop, which is where most of the OEMs are focusing today, right? They're really trying to go after that premium uh, segment of the market. So, you know, to your question, you know, what do they think? Well, they, they're not going to be happy. <laughs> and if you think about where HP and Lenovo and Dell, they're all trying to to play in that MacBook space, right? Where mm. the margins are, are better um, and where you grow your brand value. And, and now they have a competitor there. Um, but the other part that I think is important to think about is what adding a yet another 
uh, Surface device does for the Surface brand, which is really showing to enterprise customers that Microsoft is committed to hardware. And so if they want to consider Microsoft and Surface as their hardware provider, they have choice now. And that's very important. I suppose it's easy for us to, to say that they're leaving room for their partners down in the low end, but their partners don't want to be there either, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the risk is they're taking oxygen out of the out of the premium space. And, and Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and even in education, that is um, you know, is is the issue because Chromebooks are selling when it comes to the classroom. And of course, a lot of the OEMs are playing in that space. But the idea is that the kids get the Chromebooks and the administrators and the teachers get the nice, shiny, you know, higher end device. And when you can do that within a Windows environment, that means that potentially, you know, that um Surface laptop could go to the administrator while everybody else is, you know, is buying the, you know, Dell, Acer and whoever else is bringing out the $200 um, device running Windows 10S. To build on what Carolina said and to add a little bit, what struck me about the rollout is the quick emphasis they had on battery power. Um, especially with the idea, there's a clear pitch, students, you can take this, it's not going to um, run out of juice in the middle of the day, it's portable. Based on the college kids, I know that's actually a huge deal. And it's something that I haven't seen addressed by uh, companies like Lenovo, you know, when I was reviewing the specs for their yoga line, they don't have nearly the same battery longevity. And that's been an angle that Microsoft's played up with both Windows 10 uh, Microsoft and Microsoft Edge and now with their hardware. One thing I was actually really surprised by with this, um, although Microsoft mentioned Minecraft over the course of the keynote and things like that. Um, one of the categories of laptops that I saw taking off, not taking off, but getting more attention at CES this year were laptops aimed at college kids who game a lot when i especially when i went to visit dell they made much of the fact that oh this pc is perfect for students they can take it to a classroom and take notes and then they can bring and then they can bring it back to the room and they can network with other pcs and they can play multiplayer games um or they can hook up to a better monitor and and get better pictures i suppose that an education oriented event you are going to have a whole lot of emphasis on our minds they're big they're beautiful we we learn things we make robots with with popsicle sticks and it's it's all great but for a lot of kids who are going to be looking at this device and asking if it's something they that that they want to use for four years of college it's also gonna be can i can i play games on it and i was a little surprised that the only game that got mentioned was minecraft and that was in a much younger user context um that said everything i was nodding along you can't see it because it's a podcast but i was nodding along to everything else and um with microsoft rolling this out it seems like they're also going after the same space that apple used to kind of occupy which were you know really beautiful high-performing laptops that you could get um, like the MacBook Air, you could get you could get a MacBook Air for under a thousand dollars at one point. 
Yeah, you still you still can, but it just doesn't have the high resolution touchscreen display, nor yeah. nor that latest generation of processor. I mean that that leads into a question that I had for both of you, which is, uh, what what can we learn? I mean, again, not everything that Microsoft does or anybody does has to be compared to Apple, but the the wedge shaped silver you know silvery aluminum or uh, with color variations of this product does definitely call to mind the design of the MacBook Air. Um, and Apple took a different design direction last year and. By bifurcated their MacBook line into the MacBook and the MacBook Pro, which you could argue the 13-inch MacBook Pro without touch bar is uh, sort of a successor to the MacBook Air 2. But um, it's interesting here that that Microsoft seems to have done uh, what Apple chose not to do, which is essentially make a version of the of the MacBook Air that is Retina. Is this a uh, is this an exploitable hole in Apple's product lineup that Microsoft can can really fit inside of? I personally think it is um, because the traditional form factor, as I said, is important, but um, touch is also something that you know college kids uh, want to have and. You might continue to think that, you know, vertical touch, as, as Jobs used to say, is not something that Apple will ever do. And, and the touch bar is on the Pro gives you the same experience as touch, but keeps your hands where you have them, which is by the keyboard. Um, but that's only as good as how many apps are you going to have that embrace that. And, you know, having been using one for a while, it's interesting how it didn't really make much of a difference to me until it was embraced by Office. Um, and it's a bit ironic, right? That is something <laughs> that Microsoft does that lets me take to live that bar. But once you have it in whatever it is that you use for most part of your day, then the bar does make a lot of sense. But a lot of people do use a pen for um, doing different things. And, and it's interesting that inking is developing more and more. So I'm curious to see what else is going to be coming from inking and, and how much more you can use the pen, not to navigate as it used to be, right? Windows had a pen because they're um, back with, with Windows 8. It, it was so bad that you couldn't really do do it with your fingers. You needed the pen to be able to actually hit the target of whatever it is that you wanted to, to access, right? Now is well integrated in your in your workflow. Um, but it was interesting. I don't know if you noticed watching the, the event that the couple of times that Panos, uh, Panay tried to do something with the pen, it was actually holding the back of a laptop, uh, to, you know, this is a different use case than using Surface Pro. And I think that, um, you know, the, it would be keyboard first touch second versus uh, the, the pro being the other way around. Jason, I'd kind of flip the question around because um, we take a look when we take a look at how ink works and and how our hardcore Windows audience and the people who talk to us are using it. I sort of see um, ink and Microsoft's uh, Touch and Hololens as them trying to push together the building blocks of the next step in user interaction with the computing environment. Totally agree and. Um, I think the question is how it, 
if Microsoft may put the building blocks together, do you think Apple might pick up those building blocks and then run with it and turn it into a, a user experience that can be more easily mass marketed? Um, I think there's still a perception problem when it comes to Microsoft in that Apple is a readily ec- recognizable consumer brand and Microsoft still, and it gets this treatment in the press, but I think it also gets the treatment in public perception. It has the patina of being a work, a workplace brand as opposed to the, the, the shop you're going to go into to play with technology and check it out and integrate it into the fun computing aspects of your life. So what I wonder, again, what I wonder is if Microsoft isn't going to uh, define the found, define the foundational um, elements of the beyond the keyboard computing experience, then Apple will pick them up and go, Oh, here's how we've done it. Here's how we've tweaked it. And we'll, we'll all be like, Oh, this makes total sense. You know, that's, that's, that's a, let's see what happens in the next uh, 12 to 60 months kind of thing. <laughs> Wouldn't you say, though, Lisa, that the perception uh, that that Surface is helping change that perception a little bit? You know, it's still baby steps, but, you know, definitely within the the Windows ecosystem, you know, if you look at, and we did that, we asked current Mac user, um, you know, if there was something else they would consider and, you know, 78% would only consider a Mac, but the remaining, Surface was the only name that came up. The only brand. I will say on a personal level, I was 100% locked into the Apple ecosystem. And then I became the editor of Supersite for Windows, which was an interesting circumstance. I have a Surface that I use now um, for work. And that's what I used to get introduced to Windows 10 and begin using it inside and out. It's so much fun to use. It's a great user experience. Um, as a matter of fact, I was using it more than I was using the newer iterations of the iPad for a while. And I think that Surface, you know, the tablet, and I think this new product line might be a way to shift perception for users who come up through school systems and through colleges where this is the lap, this is the laptop their school told them to buy, or this is the laptop they're on. Um, I have small children and watching them play with Chromebooks and seeing how that shapes their perception of what computing ought to be like. That's going to, reverberate down the line for for years and so will surface if this if this takes off with academic institutions um, my big question is how successfully microsoft will be able to colonize and penetrate academic markets and i think from a consumer perspective kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about you know why didn't they not talk about gaming other than Minecraft. Minecraft is obviously, you know, their franchise. They they have more control over what they do with it. But I wonder, apart from the confusion, because there's already enough confusion as as it as it is with Windows S, so bringing in something else, I think might have not helped. But for me, the big thing that's still missing there uh, in, in that Windows uh, experience, especially with Windows S, where you're limited to the store, is apps. You know, pitching that this is the only device you're going to have uh, to a student is kind of hard, hard at the moment when, you know, there's still such a, a lack of, of, of apps that, you know, most uh, consumers and especially millennials uh, are using. And I think that's where they need to focus in order to get to that, you know, moving that perception is only about work. It has to be about play as well personalization and extensibility. I, I think this is why Microsoft Edge is actually having a very diffi- difficult time winning over users is we've been living in a world with browser extensions for how many years now? 
Um, you know, because you think about the ways that you and your browser is your de facto operating system, especially if you use a lot of cloud based services, or a lot of web hosted apps. And so being able to customize your browser, and add extensions that help your workflow along is something that most people just, it's a must have. And with Microsoft Edge, they haven't, they haven't focused too much on extensions. And I can see that concern repeating itself. I think you're absolutely right with regards to uh, Windows 10 S. The flip side that I have seen, seen, and this is where I feel like Microsoft is coming at it from a IT and deployment perspective. Um, a colleague of mine argued that one of the great strengths of Windows S is it's very easy to set up support and maintain security. If you're somebody who's responsible for handling the customer support for say family members, children, older adults, um, a school district, it will be very, very easy for you to, to, eliminate a lot of external security threats simply because they won't get on there in the first place. Does the uh, Surface Laptop seem like a strange pairing with Windows 10S? That's something that struck me, is that Windows 10S, which mm-hmm. seems to be a shot at Chrome OS, they're building education mm-hmm. management tools, you know, it, it only runs things from the App Store. Uh, and then you've got this this uh, nice premium laptop that they're loading with Windows 10S by default. Is that just a function of them wanting to roll this all out together? Or is there a connection there that, you know, is it what Carolina, what you were saying about how it's more of a higher ed kind of thing, but even there, if they want to play games and those games aren't in the Windows App Store, does it does it come apart? These, it seems like a weird pairing to me for two things that are actually kind of like a different set of products. It is definitely a higher ed play um, and is commitment, is showing commitment. You know, the going out just, here's Windows S and we're going to have our partners, mm. you know, do it. And but we're not going to actually, <laughs> you know, do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I think it would have Fair been a point. weaker, you know, a, a much right. weaker mm-hmm. proposition. They're, they're eating their own dog food here by putting right. it on their own premium hardware. That makes sense. Well, okay, let's move on to another topic. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody where they can find us on the internet. Of course, we're at relay.fm slash download. If you want to find our show notes, this will be relay.fm slash download slash two. You can tweet at us at underscore download FM. I am Jay Snell on Twitter. And uh, yeah, so send us, uh, send us some tweets if you like, or check out our show notes. And there's an email link there and you can email us from the show page too. All right. uh, Topic number two for this episode is about the future of TV. Now, it was a big week in the world of television, and uh, everybody out there might be asking themselves, why are we talking about television? Uh, They may know that I talk about television with Lisa every so often over at The Incomparable. But no, television is technology, right? It is rapidly transforming from this traditional airwaves broadcast medium to a streaming medium, an internet-based medium. And we saw it this week in so many different places. My quick roundup, Twitter announced that it's expanding its plans for a live TV service that it's doing. Hulu released the beta version of its new cord-cutter-friendly live TV service. New numbers came out indicating that another half million people just in the last three months cut the cord from traditional cable or satellite television and... And this is one that you may have missed. The Writers Guild of America averted a strike, which is good because we would just all be watching reality TV for the next year if they didn't. Uh, but, But what they did was a major concession in the deal was about the change in the way TV seasons are written to shorter seasons. That's largely because of the change in cable and streaming services and how they produce 
seasons. They're shorter seasons. They're not these 22-episode network TV seasons that used to be what the contracts were based on. So all of this just, and this is just one week. We could probably talk about this every week, but this was a, this was a big week. So cord cutting, talking about that, the cord cutting is up. Hulu, you know, they're joining the DirecTV now as a service, PlayStation View, Sling, YouTube TV. There are so many of these sort of streaming TV bundles out there. And, you know, Hulu's service is going to be $40 a month. So I'm wondering how much how much of this cord cutting trend that we're seeing is about people thinking that they can save money by writing a check to Hulu instead of their cable company, which I'm not sure whether that math pencils out. And is it about just the lifestyle changing where people feel like um, the way they consume entertainment has changed because of the technology they use? How much of it is a perceived sort of money saver, do you think, versus a, uh, a lifestyle shift in just how people consume tech or consume entertainment? I think it's interesting that uh, the question you're asking, so, you know, is it cost saving? Yeah, I do think that that is more important to people than hmm. the, the way that they consume content. Um, what I find interesting is that m- in most cases, you actually don't end up saving money, yeah. right? I mean, my question was a little loaded, right? Because that, that's exactly <laughs> it, is in the end, the TV people want their money, and they'll find a way to charge you for it. But you, th- you go into it thinking, well, now I don't want to pay for all of that. I just want HBO and Netflix, and then you start right. to pay for that. Yeah, and, and what, you know, coming from Europe, where... Um, it's all a little bit different. Um, you know, we are getting to the model that is similar to the U.S. now. But um, broadband, when I, I've been here five years now, but when I was in the U.K., it, the broadband part was more expensive than, than the TV. And here is the same. You know, I, I kind of tried three different providers and try not to have TV. My broadband would be astronomically expensive. Now they throw in the broadband with the TV. And, and it's really hard to actually get a deal unless you have the TV. So you kind of get like, okay, whatever, I'm getting the TV. <laughs> you know? I'm so glad you mentioned the bundling. Yeah, imagine how much that props up their number. This cord cutting number would presumably be way worse if the cable companies weren't trying to make it very hard for you to turn off your television. Absolutely. To, to bounce off of the cord cutting, um, we actually did recently have the discussion in our house about that. And when we took a look at what we were paying for our cable plus internet package, which is approximately $130 a month, and then what we would pay if we were paying for broadband alone, um, where they would charge us approximately $90 a month. If you, th- if you throw in the streaming services we'd add to it, we would basically be breaking even and we would still have, and then we would have the added inconvenience of having to find a DVR alternative if we right. still wanted to record shows in real time. And we'd have to go to the trouble of setting up separate appliances. Um, and you'll still be left with a gap in content, presumably. Indeed. And don't don't forget that your uh, your cloud DVR, uh, Hulu's $40 package, you can't skip commercials like you can with your DVR on your cable system. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was just I just did a quick back of the envelope calculation. And assuming you were to cut the cord and rely on Hulu's new service, plus, let's say your Amazon Prime subscription, plus, let's say a bare bones Netflix thing, you're looking at over $700 annually for three streaming services where you don't have the ability to record 
record shows or download them for later. You don't have the ability to skip commercials where you can, and you're still paying through the nose for internet access. Right. So for some households, the the economic argument doesn't make sense. Um, on the other hand, we haven't seen a whole lot of new household creation because adults tend to be living with their families longer, or they tend to be in multi-adult households due to, you know, a wide variety of factors, uh, starting families later, uh, slower to start careers, things like that. So it's under, so, you know, you're going to have people who are like, okay, realistically speaking, we have a cable thing. However, I'm going to subscribe to Hulu on my own and watch it in my room when my roommates are driving me crazy, or I'm going to subscribe to Netflix so I can see Orange is the New Black when my mom is downstairs watching NCIS. <laughs> but to be honest, that's exactly what we're doing, you know, and, and we are, you know, typical family in, in respect to, you know, two adults. We have one kid. She watches her Netflix. I can only binge watch stuff on Hulu when I have time, which is usually after everybody's gone to bed. To bed, yeah. <laughs> That's what it is, right? Yeah. I I, I think what's happening is um, it's it's that hedonic treadmill. For example, imagine talking, imagine going back in time twenty years and telling and telling somebody you will soon be paying three figures for access to both cable and the internet, and people would probably look at you and laugh. And no, I won't. You know. Um, but I'm going to guess that within 10 years, the idea of, of subscribing to different streaming services is going to make as much sense as it did to subscribe to, say, a newspaper and several magazines and a bare bones cable subscription may have made back in the early 90s. Yeah, there, there are a lot of changes that I think are coming. And I want to ask you about that. But I have the suspicion that my, my, my download back channel sense is tingling that Stephen Hackett has a point here because I hear he comes from a, a, a an interesting perspective about television. Stephen, did you have something here? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 31. One, I'm married. I got three kids, but I uh, I am at the older end of the sort of millennial label, and we've never had cable. And it's something that yeah. you know, uh, it, I ha- we had it kind of on and off growing up, and my wife's family had it on and off growing up. But with us, we can get what we want through other other means, and it's it's definitely not about the cost because you're right. I mean, if I sat down and looked at you know Netflix and Hulu and stuff, you know, we may buy on iTunes or or other places, Amazon Prime streaming. We probably could just pay for cable, but for mm-hmm. us, it's sort of a uh, a conversation around we don't want all of that choice. There's a lot of stuff in that package that we're just we're never going to watch, and so we'd rather cherry pick from what we do and kind of do without all the all the noise of you know everything else that comes in on that bundle. I also wonder how much of that is psychological, aside from the saving, like the to, to Stephen's point about cherry picking and say I'm not going to leave my money in somebody else's hands to choose what I'm paying for, right? I'm going to go out and and choose what I want. And I'll be damned if, you know, Comcast is going to own my life. You know, (laughs) I think a lot of it is that. Even if you're paying the same amount of money, you get to choose exactly who gets it and for what reason, which previously was only really with something like HBO, where you could choose to have it or not. But everything else was just sort of, you, you could have 80 channels or 120 channels. And that was about it. I'm going to also throw in a tribal component here, too, to bounce off the psychological one, because I've noticed a little bit of cut the cord pushback among ardent sports fans, where I've had a girlfriend who's a huge uh, Big Ten football fan say to me, I'm really tired of people virtue signaling by cutting the cord. There's nothing wrong with having cable, especially if you enjoy sports and football, because cable is still the number one place to get them. And 
another one of the big deterrents we've had in cutting the cord, because I bring up this conversation every so often with, you know, do we really need all this stuff? Is my husband watches British Premier League football and you can't really, there, there's no streaming service for that. There's no streaming service for, and, and a lot of the proprietary, um, uh, services like MLB, things like that don't provide the kind of experience that people who are used to watching sports on television want. So at this point, I feel like cable companies are holding on to sports fans with their, with their fingernails and screaming, this is how it's going to work. So here's a wrinkle though. Here's a wrinkle. And this is one of the things I wanted to ask about, which is um, there were recently not, not in my roundup from the, from this past week, but I think maybe a week before ESPN had a bunch of major layoffs and that was uh, related to cord cutting. Um, Live sports were always considered by everybody, uh, especially by cable companies. I would say a bulwark against cord cutting. One of the ideas was the, uh, you know, a cable company in LA, bought the Dodgers rights for billions and billions of dollars. And the idea there was, haha, they can't cut their cable now or they won't be won't get to see the Dodgers. But the acceleration of cord cutting seems to have made it so now that there is a change happening where these sports things are being put in these these packages like Hulu and Sling and YouTube TV. And and so for Lisa's husband, if NPC Sports Network, which is owned by Comcast by the way, which is fascinating, if that's in one of these bundles or available as an add-on on Sling or YouTube TV, something like that, then you are, you know, sort of able to get a, a, a quote-unquote cable login to watch this stuff. It's just via an IP v- equivalent. And uh, so my question is like, first off, I, I wonder about the entire economy of sports because if 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 there was a bubble formed by the idea of trying to stop people from cutting the cord, it seems like that bubble may be popping in the very near future if it hasn't already popped. And secondly, like, what's the end game for cable companies? If you're Comcast, is the long game here that you're going to not have people buying TV directly, but they're going to be paying you more for internet, and you're going to have your own internet content service that you're going to make money on? On? Are they banking on net neutrality being so wiped out that they can they can offer a service with zero bandwidth where they'll charge lots of bandwidth for for Netflix? I, I just I'm, I'm I, if you can help me see some of the end game here because we're in a huge question mark phase now where it's just a mystery yeah. about what's going to happen. Deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> you know, I, I had I had that um, that and House of Cards written down in my notes for this section yeah. because it's a little bit <laughs> and not the Netflix show, the actual like metaphor of House of Cards. There was a BuzzFeed, there was a BuzzFeed article on how ESPN's recent travails um, different sides of the political spectrum have been, you know, using them as as pro or con proof of of sports and life and it's all very messy but one of the insights that was actually tossed in as an aside that i think is quite key is that people used to tune into espn to see live sports highlights and get comments on them but now you can go to instagram and twitter for that and you don't get those reactions filtered through a corporation with a very specific um interest in maintaining access to athletes and athletic organizations you get those reactions from fellow fans and critics of the game mm-hmm. you left out the the apps of the uh, of the leagues too which have completely there's no reason to watch baseball highlights if you get the MLB app there's literally no reason to do it and so why why do you need baseball tonight which they basically canceled or even sports center 
what what happens what what happens to cable companies are they are they do they know that in the end they're going to be um their their transmission portion of their program is just going to be a dumb pipe and they're going to need to lay something else over it rather than bundling tv and let's not even talk about bundling landline phone service which they still <laughs> do uh yeah, and, yeah. and that that should be gone now too how many landlines still exist in america because of a bundle deal uh what 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 do you think carolina what do you think the end game is for these cable companies i don't know i i kind of i look at them and it's like it seems like it's they, they're following the same path as as um uh, carriers and it's funny funny that you know carriers are all rushing to buy yeah. <laughs> um tv um you know companies and 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 i don't know that that is necessarily gonna help the end game uh, you know there's a lot of premium content that you know amazon is generating netflix is you can't do that with with sport that's that's right. for sure right and and how sustainable is it unless you have you know amazon can do it because they got other businesses that can help um you know pay for it but how sustainable is it going to be for a verizon or an at&t to really look or for for apple for that matter to look at um original content you know those the big hits you know the house of cards the game of thrones those are expensive uh, and and not sustainable long term, but I do believe that ultimately, content is king, and I'll go out of my way to find the package that is going to give me the content that I want, and and that is what I'm prepared to pay for. That that's not going to change. It used to be not too long ago that one of the arguments against cord cutting was if you were a baseball fan, for example, you couldn't see your local team if you cut the cord. And that in the last couple of years, that's not true anymore because these forty dollar a month bundles absolutely will give you that. The YouTube TV announcement, the one of the things that made me perk up was that they have the com or is NBC Sports Bay Area channel which carries the Giants and A's games locally. It's in the package, so you can do that. So you know it's it's. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes, but it's already breaking down. I really thought that they would have another five years where they just held up, you know, a hand and said, no, this is the you must have cable to to watch this. And it's already changing out from under all of us, I think. I think flexibility is going to be important as well. And so, you know, how flexible are going to be some of these packages? Well, you know, that is one of the things that it's clear that we want to consume content in so many different screens and and that has to be you mm. can't make it harder for me you know if the whole pa- basis of it is is that I'm not linked to a set of box in my living room you have to make that experience nicer Right. Comcast is doing pretty, I have to say, since I'm a Comcast subscriber, they have done a pretty good job yeah. uh, with their mobile apps and things, but they know that that's the only way that they can, they can make that TV service have value is if they can layer that mobile experience on top of it. I had, before we move on, I had, I had uh, one thing, I mentioned Twitter earlier, and this is also sort of in the rearranging deck chairs department. I was curious what you think of this Twitter live TV thing they announced earlier <laughs> that they were doing NFL games. They're going to have an ESPN partnership or a, and a major league baseball partnership and all these other things that they're doing. Um, is there anything here or is this just rearranging tech chair uh, deck chairs is twitter and live tv <laughs> on twitter like make any sense yeah. no um <laughs> well, twitter's great when you're watching live tv but i'm not sure yeah. as a tv platform i agree we try we um we tested the nfl experiment that twitter did last fall and it was terrible it was a terrible user experience <laughs> say what you think lisa and i say, and I say that as somebody who has a high tolerance for a terrible tech experience i mean look at the field i've been to 
<laughs> but um, what this strikes me as is it's a it's it, we all know Twitter has he, Twitter has problems as a business. They haven't been able to monetize their users, and they have a terrible reputation insofar as how they treat their users. Um, and those are things that this on this end, I think for them, they're like, this is a win because we can finally monetize things people are doing on Twitter anyway. And from the sports perspectives, they're like, this is a win because we can finally go where the eyeballs and the attention and the audience is. And um, unless you were to have a flawless rollout and something that provides an experience that people aren't already creating for themselves, this isn't it, it, this isn't going to land. This doesn't fit an unmet need. I, I tend to agree. Yeah, it's, it's not solving a problem, is it? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Other than their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I, I, can, I can imagine the meetings. I, I, I'm sure you can too, where people came in and they're armed with research and they're like, well, this is happening anyway. Why can't we monetize this? And um, it's we, we've seen this happen in, in other industries too, where first the users come and then the company is like, all right, how can we how can we take advantage of this user activity? And then what happens is the audience up and moves because they, they don't want, they don't want an external um, entity controlling the thing that they were doing just fine on their own before. <laughs> well, deck chairs, like I said, maybe just rearranging. Yeah. Or some deck I like chairs. the idea of rearranging tech chairs too. Or I tech like chairs. Appropriate met- They're high yeah, tech like chairs. Move them around. <laughs> yeah. All right. We will move on. Um, I, I want to remind people that if you have a story you'd like to recommend during the week, if you see something and you think, oh, maybe they could talk about this. Maybe it's a story you may have missed. Maybe it's a big story that you want to make sure that we cover. Use the hashtag download stories on Twitter and uh, or you can just tweet at us at underscore download FM. But hashtag download stories puts it in this spreadsheet for us automatically. It's pretty cool. So if you use that hashtag, we really appreciate it. Now, let me tell you something that I like to do now uh, that it's been uh, episode two. I can say that this is a recurring segment, I guess. It's the story you may have missed. This is a story that may have flown under your radar, but I think might be worth mentioning. Facebook is hiring 3,000 more moderators to watch over reports of questionable content on their service, bringing the worldwide team, when they hire these people, to 7,500. This follows a bunch of recent stories about horrible, gruesome things that were streamed live on Facebook or posted uh, to Facebook pages. The the hiring announcement suggests this isn't uh, a place where machine learning is good enough to help, at least not yet. But I, I just wanted to say, and with Lisa here, who I know has done a lot of community management over the years, the reason <laughs> I brought up this story is I wanted to say, let's not forget the human cost of this. When we talk about 3,000 people being added to a team that will be 7,500 people, their job, those people, is to watch the absolute worst that humanity, of humanity. can muster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen some conversations this week with people familiar with community policing for violence, child pornography, and other issues, who have oh, pointed out that a huge number of people who take these jobs Jobs absolutely are are incapable of doing them. They wash out almost immediately. They try to screen them out. People insist they can do it. It is such a brutal job. And many of the people who actually can do the job burn out rapidly. It makes me think that this may actually be one of those areas where we should all be rooting for artificial intelligence to replace humans. Uh, that might be good for humans in general. But it's something to keep in mind that, that screening, when we talk about, oh, there should be more screening, just remember that when there are human beings screening that stuff, imagine what their job is every day is just to see anything that's been flagged as being horrible. And then they have to judge whether that horribleness reaches a certain level. It's quite it's, there's more there than just Facebook hiring people. It's a it's a much bigger, scarier thing. 
I also don't know if Facebook is going to handle the training, the support and or the employee churn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause that, that would be my biggest concern. It's one thing to say we're hiring for 3000 people, but let's say that 2400 of them after three months are like, okay, yeah, this is awful. I can't do this. Do you have the resources in place to immediately replace those 2400 people and train them and get them up to speed? Are you accounting for high turnover? Are you accounting for training? Are you going to look at ways to try to soften the attrition? And they also haven't mentioned what they're going to do to try to refine machine intelligence to mitigate the human cost and the human burden. Yeah, yeah the, the idea of providing emotional support and, and, and psychological support for these people so that they don't become permanently damaged by this terrible work that they're presumably taking because it's the work that they, they can get. And then they're subjected to this, yeah. Because a bigger long-term concern is if this um, content streaming streaming pro- screening program is seen as expensive thanks to either employee support or employee churn, then you're going to have people who are targeting it as a program to be cut back or eliminated because it costs the company money. And then that... Ugh, well, it's, just, a, it's a cost center, right? But but the, the, the alternative is that Facebook gets news stories about how somebody murdered somebody live on Facebook. And, and then, then there's pressure. However, put I, I, can, I can honestly easily see somebody on the board of directors saying, listen, that doesn't hurt our stock price, or that doesn't hurt our earnings that hasn't impacted our advertising. So why should we care? And, um, you know, then the people who are running Facebook have to come back with a plausible argument that will not get them fired that says, well, because, you know, we, we live in a civilization and yeah. there's a social compact there. Um, and, and I'm sorry, it sounds very cynical when I put it like that. In business reporting, what I have noticed is that anytime companies sink money into, um, their workforce, either through raising wages or reducing turnover or increasing benefits. First, they get punished by the stock market. Then they come in for a lot of internal criticism from the board of directors. And then they tend to get targeted by outside analysts who are like, well, they really could afford to cut those costs because it's not a good shareholder value to pay to, 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 to invest so much in your employees. Yeah. Over the years. Yeah. That's the question. You've got to have the vision to be able to see the big picture there and not accede to the Nickel and diamond. Yeah. A lot of investors and a lot of people in a financial space are more focused on quarter to quarter results or year over year results. And what they're seeing is these employees are costing shareholders money as opposed to these employees are building a firmer, you know, a, a more solid financial foundation. So I'm a little concerned about it's really easy to say, yeah, we're going to hire 3000 people. It's the follow through I'm concerned about. It's the amount of um, organizational support and financial resources they're going to get. It's the amount of political support they have inside the organization that I'm, um, I'm wondering about. It's the amount of technological support and it's the long-term implementation, maintenance, and refinement of the program I'd want to keep an eye on. But it's interesting that you, uh, Jason, mentioned machine learning because that, to me, raises other kind of alarm bells when you're talking about sensitive, uh, you know, information of any kind. That uh, can machine learning really learn what is offensive, what is yeah. uh, you know racist, what is sexually explicit how do you do that who is supposed to you know train um properly because if you think about the biases that we have in our society that is what concerns me the most you know as far as are we all going to be represented you know men women black white 
Especially, and you raise a good point because algorithms are not neutral. Um, you Correct. know, they're, they're written by people who bring their own experiences, perceptions, Absolutely. and biases into it. Yeah, this is hard, this is hard stuff. And I, I, I can make the, the joke that maybe this would be a great place for AI to replace human jobs. I think that, that you're actually right. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. I have a hard time seeing how that will happen because it's the famous Supreme Court line about pornography, knowing it when you see it, it it, takes a a huge amount of cultural context and understanding. In fact, you could argue that this is one of the last jobs that could be converted to being something that could be done by a machine because it requires that uh, it requires in some ways humanity and a cultural context and understanding. It's just happens to be one of the worst jobs conceivable. What always shocks shocks me about this, and, and we're not necessarily talking tech, but more kind of human beings. It's not necessarily the one single person that posted what got posted. is the millions of people that watched it. That is what scares me from a human perspective. Yep. It takes, it takes an audience, right, to, to, to have something. If you Absolutely. publish it and nobody watches it, then, yeah. you know, it, it, was, it was just you. But the audience turns it into something more. Well, let's move on to another topic that I... I, I a lighter some, topic? Well, <laughs> in some ways, it's, it's certainly different. Yeah. Uh, topic mm-hmm. number three on my rundown today is money, 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 money. It is corporate earnings season. And we got a lot of, uh, of corporate results in the last week. I want to uh, talk about with, with each, each of you. I asked you before the show some things you were interested in and talking about Microsoft Alphabet, uh, which is Google, basically Google's owner. And Apple, Microsoft reported $22 billion in revenue. Its cloud business is growing. Alphabet generated $25 billion in revenue and is growing, although its business is still mostly, surprise, surprise, from Google ads. Apple's quarter was basically flat year over year, but still featured a staggering $53 billion in revenue. Um, so let's, talk, let's start with Microsoft. I asked, like I said, each of you about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carolina, you said uh, you were interested in talking about Windows Phone. That that uh, fascinates me. What what did you what would you like to talk about <laughs> about that? Tell me more. I'm intrigued. I well, yeah, I want to talk about Windows Phone because we really should stop talking about it. As and they need to just pull the plug already. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. I really think that um, you know, as much as we were talking earlier about Windows 10 and Windows 10s Surface, you know, when Microsoft has changed as a company tremendously over the past couple of years, um, there is a lot of innovation. They are focusing on hardware and the platform and first um, party apps that are becoming better and better. Phones ain't gonna happen. You know, it's just, it's late, Mm -hmm. it's too much. (laughs) And I think that there's so much more value in, back to what Lisa was saying as far as um, HoloLens and the next phase of computing, that's where they need to focus. And and they, you know, at the moment, there's nothing happening there. And I understand that they have enterprise customers and that they might feel, you know, that they need to serve that audience. But, you know, nobody else seems to care. (laughs) <laughs> so move on and, well, and, and really focus on tomorrow because they're doing great stuff with, with HoloLens and mixed reality. Um, and, and I think that's where the focus should be. When I was at Microsoft Ignite last fall and interviewing people from different Microsoft teams, what was really striking was how none of them had a Windows phone. <laughs> I mean, obviously that that ship has sailed, and they and they have Android phones in the Microsoft stores now. But there is that moment where you you've got to say this is just slowing you down; it's holding you back. Why are you even pretending that this thing exists? Let it go. Focus on the future. Yeah, yeah. they're kind of 
of doing the they're they're kind of doing that sidle out the door thing because when they um you know really what because when they released Windows 10 Mobile to the fast track they're like yeah we're only supporting a tiny handful of devices and there was of course outcry and we took a look at what they were supporting and we we said they're they're such a tiny percentage of the market it doesn't matter anymore it, you know they they could announce they're only supporting one device and it would still make no difference it's, but I I think that the, I don't know why they struggled to really think about it in a different way which is you know let people have their iPhones and, and Android and make sure that their companion platform is Windows and and is you know and is Office when it comes to productivity or you know Microsoft Teams or whatever it is right make it so that from an engagement perspective you are front and center to what as a user I want to do for both work and play and I so happen to have it on another phone, but then I'm using, you know, a, a Windows PC or a two-in-one and I might have Cortana um, in the home, whatever else that they want to do, you know, from, from a, a device perspective, but not a phone. Yeah, to, to ping pong off that, to circle back around to the first topic, one of the reasons that this week's announcements interested me so much is um, I thought this is their 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 this is the best way for, for them, for, for Microsoft to grab Mindshare early on with kids who grew up assuming that Office is your default suite, OneNote is your default information capture vault. Um, the same way that you now have uh, people who graduated from college and are entering the workforce who just used Google as their default because they right. used Google Chat as high schoolers right. and they used, and um, I saw a great Tumblr post, uh, Tumblr, God, I'm citing Tumblr. Um, I saw a great Tumblr post on this where a group of students in a particular college lecture opens up a shared Google Doc. They all take notes and they annotate the notes with questions and answers for each other. So it's collaborative, live, real-time note-taking. Um, using Google. That's awesome. Yes, it's, it's a, and it's a fantastic use of collaborative technology. And I thought to myself, when, when I saw what they were doing with Microsoft Teams with Windows S and the educational thing, I saw, I thought, this is how Microsoft can take on Slack. Um, yes. And, um, this is how, more importantly, they can define user expectations for generations of people who will then carry it into the workplace and say, this is what I want. Why can't I have it? But in order for them to do that, their mindset needs to change from, ooh, you can use Jeff or GIF, depending where you sit, and mm -hmm. emojis, and, and it's so cute, to this is how people communicate nowadays. This is what, you know, my nine-year-old can send me 25 emojis in a text message. That's part of how she expresses herself. It's not cute is how conversation is changing. And until that mindset changes, you're not going to get it. Yeah. I thought Apple got it really nicely when they uh, rolled out their, they, they, they seem to, Apple seems to have gotten it, especially with their mobile stuff. Yeah. Talk about Alphabet, Lisa, something that you mentioned to me, and I was thinking about it too, the idea that um, so much of, I mentioned it earlier, so much of Alphabet's revenue is Google ads, even to this day, like so much of what, that's what drives the company. Um, and so the question is, what happens if the online ad market collapses? What happens, what happens to Alphabet's business? So, Lisa, what happens? <laughs> Tell me the future. Uh what ha I we better hope that their cloud-based services pick up. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> well, because right now it's it's them, it's um, Amazon Web Services, and uh, Microsoft is 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 making fairly aggressive plays in that area too. Um, there was it was a Gardner report I think that came out this week where um, 
or Forrester. I honestly can't remember which one. I, there's been a lot of stuff that's crossed my desk. And um, they were saying, yeah, the, the ad market is, is the online ad market is basically on the verge, verge of collapse because um, ad blockers have gotten that good. And um, users have shown no tolerance or no willingness to put up with it. And so there's going to have to be a new way for advertisers to target specific users. And there's a there's the data and so on and so forth. And then the question becomes if, if online ads lose all their efficacy and their value, um, what happens to companies who make their money off of, off of ads? And in the case of something like Google, what I wonder is if they're going to start, like I said, are they going to double down on, on the cloud and, and go after Amazon more aggressively there? Or will they maybe start charging for services that used to be free? I don't know if they, are even looking at anything like this to be to be honest um alphabet as a company is 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 kind of weird and frustrating because they buy a lot of other companies and they launch a lot of products and then they just sort of kind of kill them off and and it's just what what are you doing I <laughs> so um it seemed like the advertising unit was one that was working and i don't know if it's going to keep working if, if that makes sense, or if they're still trading on a business model that worked for 10 years. Well, it's clear that part of their strategy all along has been to launch a whole bunch of other stuff to find follow-on businesses as the internet ad business falls apart at some point, as it presumably will, or it Nothing might. Nothing has stuck, though. But that's, that's the, the challenge is, if, if it happens soon, what do they have to pick up yeah. the slack? And I don't know what that is. Because they weren't able to successfully get into a social media space, much less figure out how to monetize it. Android is wildly successful, but it doesn't do anything for their bottom line. But directly that's right exactly yeah. yeah yeah and he didn't do anything from an experience perspective either um you know from for from a user perspective but they one of the things that they counting on or or it seems so uh is hardware but that's going to be a long road ahead is you know one pixel is not going to do it for them um, well, let's let's talk about Apple for a moment, just because their their earnings also came out this week. Um, the uh, the iPhone sales were flat. Basically, they were slightly down in number and slightly up in revenue, which indicates, as the executives indicated, uh, an increased mix toward the um, or a lean toward the uh, the seven plus model, which is more expensive and away from the older models and the smaller models. And then the Apple Watch was sort of described in general terms and not really characterized in terms of sales um, uh, overall. Um, Lisa, what did you think about the the sales numbers from Apple? I do think what we are looking at is your typical post-holiday pre-product launch slump. What I've observed in users and seen in conversations is you have people who will say things like, I need to replace my phone. Do I, do I do it now or do I wait? And a lot of times the advice is, oh, you should wait or you should look at the rumors and things like that. I mean, Apple, Apple still has more money than God. So they're doing okay. Well, I, mean, I, I was realizing that their profit is, is about half of what Microsoft's revenue was last quarter, which is interesting. Yeah. But they have such a different base though. I mean, the thing is, it always amazes me that they're kind of compared head to head when it's pretty clear that that you know, for all that I'm, I, I just carped about Microsoft's accounting, they really do have um, a commitment to um, workplace customers, and they really, you know, like somebody in that somebody in Microsoft has said, you know, people spend a lot of time at work. We may as well hit them where they live and sell them stuff for that. And you know, while people use Apple products at work, you know, they, they're they're 
and, and operating systems and so on and so forth, they don't have a productivity suite that goes head to head with Microsoft. I kind of think that they've given up and I don't know if that's necessarily the, the, uh, the wrong choice. You know, at no, the end of the not. day, try and go in and, and make iWorks compete against Office. It's going to take forever. It's going to get, take such a, so embrace it. And so have Office, you know, to my point Why earlier, not focus make on the which, best. Yeah. yeah. Focus Absolutely. on what you do well, Apple, which is they've done a great job of showing how technology can enhance, augment, and expand and extend an entertainment experience. Um, you know, I mean, that's what the iPod did is the iPod effectively made everybody music curators. The iTunes music store taught people the merits of frictionless e-commerce. Um, Apple TV, I may be in a minority here. I love Apple TV. And it's been a great way to change. It's, it's been interesting watching and having a kid. It's been interesting watching how her concept of television, like she literally has no truck for, for live broadcast television at all. To her, it's not TV until she can flip through a menu, select what she wants, watch it when she wants it, pause. Like the first time we watched live TV in a hotel room, she was literally furious with, why can't I watch what I want? Why do I have to see the commercial? Right. It's that a constant, moment. right? Yeah. 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 And, Absolutely. and the thing is, is, is Apple is really good at understanding that when people, people love beautiful technology, but more importantly, they love beautiful technology that lets them do something else. Um, yeah. you know, watch a movie, listen to music, um, you know, go swimming and check to see how many minutes they've done laps or what have you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so, so that's, that's my derail, but. <laughs> No, it's 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 good. And on the watch side, you know, they they definitely talked a lot about wearables. They they want to, the watch to be viewed in a context that includes things like Beats and the AirPods. And uh, I, you know, the the talk about the watch is still fairly confident. I think that one of the things that they that gives them confidence is not that that product is an out and out hit, but that it's selling very well, and that a lot of their competitors have found that it's an extremely difficult market to be in. And and by the terms well, of is. that market, yeah. they have been very successful. And that's the. W- how they do it differently. And, and I think, you know, uh, creative strategies was, was mentioned um, because we did a study on AirPods and, and we looked at, um, we did a broader study, study on uh, voice and, and assistant and AirPods was part of that. And satisfaction uh, is through the roof. They have the highest product satisfaction at the moment for Apple um, and 98%. And MPS, which is the net promoter score, was also very high, which doesn't happen with watch. And that shows you how difficult a product it is. You know, with AirPods, although they have, you know, the magic that, that Apple put on it on how they do, but they're, you know what they are, it is a headset and, and is a Bluetooth headset and it works in the same way. Nobody has to kind of try and tell you how you're going to derive any value from it. With watch is different. Because what watch does for me is different to what watch does for Lisa and for you, Jason, right? So is I don't know that I feel when people like ask me, oh, do you like it? And I say, yeah, I do. Should I get it? Well, I don't know. Right. What yeah. do you want from it? Right. It's a much more complicated thing. And this goes for wearables across the board. It is a tough market. And there was a lot of talk this week about the fact that um, it was Google Maps, Amazon and eBay um, uh, will not have a, um, a watch app companion. And everybody was freaking out saying, oh, this shows that, um, you know, that, that watch is not being successful. These people are moving away. And, you know, granted, I think that Google is simply politics, but 
for others, this shows that actually the watch is not necessarily benefited from an app ecosystem the same way as the iPhone and the iPad do. Is a different beast and is about, you know, communication, is about notification and is about, exactly to, to your point, Lisa, is about how it interacts with other things. Try and use watch and AirPods and Siri becomes a different beast. You know, so it, it is complicated and, and it's going to take them a little bit longer to really figure out what it is. But I don't think they're going to walk away from this because there's a lot of opportunity. What I've noticed with watch is it's very successful when it helps you modify or monitor uh, a task in some way. For example, one of my favorite features about watch is how if you are driving someplace and you've got Apple Maps open for directions, the tapping, the way it buzzes your wrist before you have to turn. I love that. I love (laughs) that so much. And um I, I really love being able to just speak to my watch and say, set a timer for 10 minutes and keep going on my business as opposed to having to shout at my phone or my iPad to do that while I'm cooking. Cause I, I use my iPad as my primary cookbook. So being able to tell my watch to, to keep a timer for me has been fantastic that way. And I do love the standing and the pulse and this and that. But, you know, like to your point, Carolina, other people are going to have other ways that they want to modify or have alerts to their behavior. Um, I think once um, there is a way to successfully convey to a whole lot of people that this watch helps you do you only in a much bigger, better way, as opposed to with this watch, you can pop onto an inner tube and your activity circle will be complete when the fireworks go off. Um, I, I think when people realize that this watch is, um, an unobtrusive way to to help you get done what you want to get done. And it's not a substitute for a phone, a tablet or computer. It is an extension that you don't have to 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 use your hands, you can use voice as an interface. I think that's when it gets really exciting. But it requires an investment, doesn't it? it, it requ- from a user perspective, it, it, it requires you to kind of figure out what you want out of it. And it, it's not going to do it for you, you're going to have to kind of Pay attention to because it's fascinating at the very beginning when he launched that you had people that had not had a wearable before go, oh, my God, the notifications are just a pain and I get distracted. And then you talk to them and it's like, OK, well, I have Twitter on. I have Facebook on. I have email on. It's like, man, you, you know, is your buzz is going to your your uh, pulse is going to be on fire because it's going to keep on buzzing all day long. It. That's not what it's for. I, I think if Apple is really canny, they'll also use the watch to train their audience to expect voice and touch as the ne- as, as again the next steps in computing. Because um, I use Siri a whole lot now, thanks to the watch. Um, just because it's easy to talk to my watch and have it pop back up, you know, with the things I want to get done. You can see how it becomes a wearable strategy when you when you tie all of those things together. We are yeah, exactly. um, just yeah. about out of time. I want to thank both of you for being here, Lisa Schmeiser. Tell people, if you would, where people can find the stuff that you do. All right, I am on Twitter as L Schmeiser. That's spelled L S C H M E I S E R, and I also have a tiny letter where I wrap up um, some of the stuff I've done, and I also reprint my column for the Observer. Um, the newsletter is called "So What? Who Cares?" and it's at Tiny Letter slash L Schmeiser. Carolina, tell people where they can find uh, the stuff that you do. I'm on Twitter at Caro underscore uh, Milanesi M I L A N E S I. I publish uh, a weekly column for Tech Pinions on uh, techpinions.com. And uh, I'm uh, um, 
also doing some blogs for um, Creative Strategies, which is creativestrategies.com. That's great. So um, here's what's to look out but until we see you again next week. I've just got movie news this time. Rocket Raccoon is back in theaters with Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I'm going to go see. And uh, you should Google Bill Mantlo or look in the uh, show notes sometime. The guy who created Rocket Raccoon, it's sort of a sad story. He had a uh, permanent brain injury. And uh, and the good news is the success of uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy. Marvel has actually helped take care of his care. And I read a story this week about how his brother has constructed a house next to his house for uh, Bill to move into out of the permanent nursing facility for the rest of his life, which is pretty amazing. It's a, it's quite a sad but uh, also heartwarming ending to a sad story. So I will go see Guardians of the Galaxy 2. That brings us to the end of this episode of Download. Thanks again to Lisa Schmeiser and Carolina Milanese. To my producer, Stephen Hackett. Thanks, Stephen. You bet. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. Until next week, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.